0: Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 3rd. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's start out, as usual, by taking a look at the weather. For today, there is a slight chance of snow, mainly in the southeastern portion of the state, with a northerly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour. The high today, 43, the low tonight, 27. Tomorrow, Mostly cloudy, with a westerly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 45 and a low of 26. On Sunday, mostly cloudy, with a southeasterly wind at 20 to 30 miles per hour plus, with a high of 49, a low of 39. Then on Monday, there is a chance of showers with a northeasterly wind at 15 to 25 miles per hour. The high Monday will be 50 and the low will be 27. Today's top weather story is from meteorologist Jan Ryherd, who says, The latest drought monitor, released Thursday morning, showed continued improvement in eastern Iowa thanks to recent rain and snow. Only abnormally dry conditions remain east of Interstate 35, dropping off the patch of moderate drought still left in southeast Iowa. Precipitation throughout December, January, and February has been above average in large part across the upper Midwest. Most of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, the Dakotas, and Iowa all recorded top 10 or greater wet winters, based on recent estimates by the Iowa Environmental Mensonet. And with ground temperatures rear or above freezing, much of this moisture is able to soak in rather than run off. This should put the Mississippi in good shape to return to normal levels in the spring. And that's today's top weather story from meteorologist Jan Reihard. Now we move to the front page of today's Gazette, where there's a story written by Brittany J. Miller says Cedar Lake water will be pumped into Cedar River. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. Within the next few months, 30 new wells will pump millions of gallons of water from a sectioned-off portion of Cedar Lake into the Cedar River each day. The dewatering project will pave the way for a levee to stretch more than 2,000 feet across Cedar Lake's west bank. Originally, the flood control system stopped south of this area. The recreational and community opportunities were such that we were able to move that protection northward to include Cedar Lake, the City Community Development Director Jennifer Pratt said, and went on to say that is extra insurance against future flooding, and that is great for long-term water quality. The urban lake was previously used as a cooling pond for the adjacent Alliant Energy coal-fired power plant, which has since been demolished. The company sold the lake to Cedar Rapids for $1 in 2019. Since then, the lake has played an integral part in the city's Connect CR project, and now it represents another piece of the city's $750 million flood control system master plan coming to fruition. At their basic level, dewatering projects remove groundwater and surface water from sites to dry out and stabilize them, readying areas for construction. It's a necessary step for the Cedar Lake levee, which will overlap with a 100-foot-wide chunk of the lake's current western edge, estimated Cedar Rapids Public Works Director Bob Hammond. Contractors broke ground around a year and a half ago to separate the stretch of water from the rest of the lake. They created a causeway by dumping large amounts of dirt in a line across Cedar Lake running parallel to the shore. 30 wells half of them rooted in the causeway, half of them rooted in the original shoreline, will pump around 600 gallons of water a minute from the site. The water will flow into underground pipes that eventually dump into the Cedar River, although it will amount to around 25 million gallons of discharged water per day. Once the water is sucked from the area, there will be a three to four foot layer of goo along the bottom of the area, according to Hammond. The wells will continue running until the muck, too unstable to build the top, is dry enough to be excavated. To construct the levee, Layers of earthen, clay like materials will be compacted on top of each other to reach around 22 feet tall, similar to the height of Quaker Oats flood wall. It will take around two years to complete. Hammond said it will effectively be then the west bank of the Cedar Lake. A discharge permit granted by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources said the project could start discharging into the Cedar River on March 1st. The wells are already constructed, but the piping still is being completed. Pumping is expected to begin in the next couple of months, Hammond estimated. The Cedar River wasn't the original destination for the discharge from the Cedar Lake dewatering process. Rather, it was the McLeod Run, Iowa's only urban trout stream that runs parallel to I-380 before cutting into the Cedar River. However, sampling revealed elevated levels of ammonia, nitrogen, and iron in one of the dewatering wells. Amounts of other potential contaminants from the lake's industrial past, like volatile organic compounds or pesticides, were not anticipated to impede water quality standards. The contaminated groundwater had no direct correlation with the lake's surface water, according to Hammond, but the city still needed to find an alternative outfall. Among the options considered, releasing untreated lake water into the Cedar River, according to Hammond, was deemed the most reasonable and affordable option at a $1 million. Plus, the river's larger flow can dilute pollutants better than McLeod Run so the discharge shouldn't majorly impact the ecosystem. The outfall into the river is downstream of any active Cedar Rapids wells that that pull the city's drinking water. The discharge permit administered by the Iowa DNR sets monthly limits on the amount of ammonia and iron released into the Cedar River. A maximum of 12.9 milligrams of ammonia per liter, or 2,700 pounds a day, can be released in June. The project can discharge to 10 milligrams of total iron per liter, or 2,085 pounds a day, year round. Hammond said contaminant levels should easily adhere to those discharge limits. Although ammonia levels reportedly reached 13.1 milligrams per liter, average concentrations were around 4 milligrams per liter. Similarly, while total iron concentrations peaked at 40.9 milligrams per liter, their levels averaged 5.3 milligrams. Ammonia and iron levels in the discharge will be sampled every week and the contaminants impede their limits. Contractors can shut down pumping from individual wells if that happens. Hammond said, This isn't large quantities of this stuff. It's just that it was picked up and sampled and it was determined that we really needed to have an alternative. Cedar Lake is used for fishing and recreation. It was taken off the state's impaired waterways list in 2015, and a 2019 Iowa DNR study found its waters were safe for recreation. Because of the investments in flood control and water quality, like the Stormwater Mitigation Project planned for the water body's south cell, Cedar Lake qualifies for the Iowa DNR's lake restoration program. Pratt said, we would work with the DNR hand-in-hand in in figuring out what is the long-term lake restoration plan, but we had to get these protective components in place before we were eligible to work with the state. Also on the front page today is a story written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette, Mercy Iowa City Retained Performance Improvement Consultant, Dateline Iowa City. Mercy, Iowa City Hospital, in recent months, had to retain a, quote, strategic and operational performance improvement consultant after breaching debt coverage obligations, according to a disclosure the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board posted on Tuesday. The 194-bed Iowa City Hospital is one of 23 affiliated with the Mercy One Network. It retained Insight Health Partners to meet a consultant requirement because, quote, income available for debt services of the obligated group is less than 110% of the maximum annual debt service requirement. Mercy Iowa City officials told the Gazette Wednesday the hospital engaged Inside Health over the summer to, quote, help Mercy Iowa City complete an assessment of financial and strategic operations, and their work was completed months ago. Officials didn't disclose Details about what the consultant found or changes the assessment completed for Mercy Iowa City and its subsidiaries, which includes Mercy Services Iowa City, Mercy Outreach Iowa City, and the Mercy Hospital Foundation. But the hospital portion of Mercy's business enterprise ended December with a quarterly operating loss of $5.5 million which when combined with non-operating losses and deficiencies totaled 8.2 million that's according to the new financial documents published by the rulemaking board last week that loss dropped Mercy's net assets from 42.7 million at the start of the quarter to 34.5 million by the end of the year. When compared to a year earlier, Mercy's net assets are down 60.3 million or 64% from December of 2021. Including Mercy Iowa City subsidiaries, net assets have fallen from 8.2 million in December of 2021 to 71.5 million in the red. Although cash and cash equivalents for the Mercy Hospital portion fell from $22.1 million in the 2021 budget year to $5.8 million at the end of the 2022 budget year in June, its cash on hand has ticked up since that time to $5.9 million but the hospital's total assets are down to 179.1 million from 209.9 million in June thanks in part to the big investment losses with that line item tumbling from 22.1 million in June to 7.9 million in December Regarding its operations, Mercy, in December, reported an uptick in admissions for three months prior, compared with the same period in 2021. But its patient days are down, its average length of stay is down, and its surgeries have decreased over the last three months in the final quarter of 2022, according to documents filed with the Rulemaking Board. Mercy's occupancy percentage has dropped from 31% in 2021 to 27% for the period that ended this past December. Meanwhile, two miles west, the sprawling University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics campus is overrun with patients, averaging 96% occupancy, of its 620-plus staffed adult inpatient beds in the 2022 calendar year. That occupancy rate has stayed mostly static over the last five years, although UIHC's staffed bed average has increased since 2021. The increasing Severity of patients occupying those beds has upped the average length of stay, aggravating congestion in the UIHC emergency room, where patients needing admission can wait many hours, if not longer. UIHC interim CEO Kim Hunter in February told the Board of Regents the number of people waiting in the emergency room can reach 70, with up to 30 at a time waiting for an inpatient bed, especially boarding there. She says that means they've seen a physician, they've received some treatment to stabilize them, and then a decision has been made to admit them to a hospital inpatient bed. And when that bed is not immediately available, they wait in the emergency department and receive care from physicians and nurses during that time. The number of hours patients spent boarding in the UIHC emergency department jumped 40 percent over five years. Hunter said that is really linked to our capacity constraints of not having beds available that are empty. UIHC has cited those constraints in announcing more than a billion dollars in construction planned for the coming years, including a new impatient tower on the main campus, an expanded emergency room, and a new hospital campus in North Liberty, which will include an emergency room. A range of community health care providers, including Mercy Iowa City, fought UIHC's application to build just east of I-80 in North Liberty, citing harm it could do to their business. Sister Helen Marie Burns, a Mercy Iowa City board member, told the State Health Facilities Council in August of 2021 during a hearing to consider the proposal to build in North Liberty that when a state-funded academic and medical institution crosses the line into providing the same primary and secondary care services which are provided by community hospitals, it threatens the continued existence of other providers. It reduces patient choice and access to care, and it creates an atmosphere or an environment of distrust among possible collaborators. After UIHC received the state permission and Mercy Iowa City embarked on finding a new managing partner or owner in its quest to cut ties with Mercy One, UIHC offered a $605 million sum to take ownership of the community hospital and make it the centerpiece of a new UIHC community division. That deal never materialized, according to reporting and documents obtained by the Gazette. Moving on now to the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Grace King of the Gazette which says kids recognized with 14 under 14 awards. Dayline Cedar Rapids. When Taft Middle School 7th grader Callie Gallagher noticed students with different abilities being excluded from extracurricular activities, she sought to start a Best Buddies program. Best Buddies is a national non program and student-run friendship club that pairs students with and without disabilities to help create an inclusive school climate. Last year, Callie recalls being made fun of by her peers for sitting at lunch with students who have intellectual disabilities. She said, those are my friends. I feel comfortable around them. Those kids, I feel like they don't judge me and we all just have fun together. The 12-year-old Callie was one of 14 students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District recognized Thursday with a 14 Under 14 Award from Kids First Law Center. It highlights leaders under the age of 14 for exemplifying positive leadership qualities like good citizenship, problem-solving, empathy, and kindness. 50 teachers nominated students in Cedar Rapids schools for the award. A selection committee at Kids First narrowed that down to 14 honorees, according to Jenny Schultz, the executive director of the Kids First Law Center. This is the second year of the award. The Kids First Law Center gives children a voice in divorce, custody, and other conflicts by providing them with legal representation and services. Under Cali's leadership, Taft's Best Buddies Club met for the first time this month with more than 30 students gathering. Cali also volunteers with Super Sports, which is a program at Taft where students help their peers with intellectual disabilities in physical education class. Every day, Callie volunteers to read books to the students in the intellectual disabilities classroom who she says has genuine friendships with, said Callie's teacher, Annalise Stieber, who nominated Callie for the award. April Gallagher, Callie's mom, said Callie has always had a soft heart for special needs kids. Last year, she asked for money for Christmas and bought every one of the students at Taft with special needs a gift. She said she's got a super kind heart. Another recipient of the 14 Under 14 Award, 13-year-old Bridget Charles is being recognized for creating certificates of appreciation for her peers and school staff at Roosevelt Creative Corridor Business Academy. She presents a student, chosen with input from their teachers, with a certificate once a week. Her dad, Timothy Charles, said he is so proud of her. He says, Bridget is a good kid who always tries to help others. Other students who receive the 14 Under 14 Award are 11-year-old Blaze Adams, a 5th grader at Erskine Elementary School, who comes to school with a smile on his face and ready to work hard every day. Also, 11-year-old Brett Angelus Gagnon, a 5th grader at Cedar River Academy, who is a friend to everyone and a dedicated student, they say. Also, 11-year-old Jack Brummer, a fifth grader at Pierce Elementary School, who they say puts other people's needs before his own. Schultz said, if someone's book falls on the floor during class, he bolts out of his seat to help and assist classmates with their homework. Also, 11-year-old Lila Clymer, a fifth grader at Johnson STEAM Academy, who, Schultz said, is the ultimate helper. She comforts students who have difficult home lives and helps those struggling academically. Ten-year-old Dakota Collins, a fifth grader at Arthur Elementary School whose teachers have never heard him say a harsh word against anyone. Thirteen-year-old Nesa. Dacius, a sixth grader at Roosevelt Creative Corridor Business Academy, who Schultz said, leads by example. She often steps into contentious situations and is the voice of reason, even when adults struggle to do so. 12-year-old Gianna Gabor, a 7th grader at McKinley STEAM Academy, who they say volunteers at a library technology as a library technology aide, delivering laptops to classrooms early in the morning. 11-year-old Myra Gibbons, a 7th grader at Franklin Middle School, who, they say, operates a non profit where she donates her earnings from playing the violin for weddings and other events to the Humane Society and the Harmony School of Music's Outreach Orchestra. Nine year old Martha Magisha, a fourth grader at Hoover Community School, who is a peacemaker in her classroom, according to her teachers. Ten year old Camariana Smith, a fifth grader at Cedar River Academy, who they say is a peer model for students with autism at her school. Ten year old Kaya Tate, a fourth grader at Grantwood Elementary School, who teachers say raised over a hundred dollars for the Grantwood Fun Run by volunteering at a barber shop where her dad works sweeping up hair for tips. And thirteen year old Ella. Wayna Wangher, a 7th grader at Wilson Middle School, who, teachers say, sought to educate her peers with kindness after another student used a racial slur. Wayanowar came to the U.S. from Liberia when she was 5 or 6 and is not afraid, they say, to have conversations about social justice. Also on the Iowa Today page is a story written by Emily Anderson, says CR anti-trafficking nonprofit shifts focus to children. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. Chains Interrupted, a Cedar Rapids nonprofit that combats human trafficking in Iowa, is shifting its focus to preventing trafficking of youths. The shift will allow the organization to more effectively use its resources to prevent trafficking among minors and to advocate for young trafficking sur- uh, survivors, according to Teresa Davidson, the CEO and co founder of Chains Interrupted. Davidson says, We've gone to schools. We've gone to church youth groups. We've gone to organizations that currently work work with or serve high-risk youth. And any place that we go, we've just been seeing children letting us know that they have experienced human trafficking in the past or are currently being trafficked. So, we started trying to figure out what do we do with them? Where can they go for help? Where are the resources? And what we discovered was that there are some resources for adults, but there really weren't very many resources available for children. Davidson said the nonprofit's mission has three pillars, awareness, prevention, and advocacy. The awareness work won't change much with the continuation of education programs and with events and programs that build awareness. The prevention work will shift from working to prevent trafficking in all sectors to preventing trafficking of children. To do this, Change Incorporated will provide more education and resources to schools and other groups that work with minors. Davidson said, We think that this prevention education needs to expand. Currently, we're going in and teaching the kids this is what it looks like if you're being groomed into trafficking. This is what you could see. The organization will be applying for a federal grant that would give them the resources to reach more schools. It also is forming partnerships with local organizations that work with children like Foundation Two, Tanager Place, Four Oaks, the Lynn County Juvenile Detention Center, and the Mental Health Institute in Independence. Davidson said, instead of sending staff and volunteers to meet with child trafficking survivors and serve as their advocates, Chains Interrupted will be providing education and resources in the organizations already working with youths so that the can come from someone the child already knows. Change Interrupted will continue operating its Harbor House program, which helps trafficking victims between the ages of 18 and 24 find housing and live independently after escaping trafficking. Previously, Chains Interrupted worked closely with the Riverview Center in Cedar Rapids, which provides services to survivors of sexual and domestic violence to provide services for adult survivors of human trafficking. Davison said, we're seeding the need, so we decided to step into that gap. We actually wanted to do both. We wanted to continue to serve adults as well as children, but funding was an issue, and so we had to make a difficult choice. Change Interrupted has two full-time staffers, four part-time staffers, and a number of volunteers. Now we move on to the insight page for today's Gazette editorial, which is headlined Fully Fund Access Centers. The Gazette says We believe it would be a short sighted decision to underfund mental health access centers in Lynn and Johnson counties. The centers provide care to people who are in a mental health crisis or who face a substance abuse situation, either through walk ins or in cooperation with law enforcement agencies. Underfunding these critical services makes no sense, considering it would reduce the availability of services and curtail hours that the centers can be open. Lynn County Supervisor Ben Rogers, according to reporting by the Gazette's Marissa Payne, says that's the whole point of access centers, the access. Rogers represents the county on the East Central Mental Health Region Board, which oversees funding for mental health needs in Benton, Bremer, Buchanan, Delaware, Dubuque, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, and Lynn counties. We agree with Rogers Lynn County requested one point eight seven five million dollars to fund its access center, and Johnson County requested one point four million. A preliminary budget allocates one point twenty five million to each access center at the same time, the region is projecting a five point eight million budget surplus. We see no reason to shortchange the access centers, which were built with large investments by Lynn and Johnson counties to build a large surplus. Payne reported that surplus dollars must be returned to the state, which funds mental health regions. Rather than do that, the region makes decisions late in the budget year as to how to spend those dollars. This strikes us as a misguided budgeting practice. Access center services are available to all residents in the nine-county region. County officials contend the centers have not received enough funding to handle growing needs. Along with inadequate regional funding, the centers have been hit by low Medicaid reimbursement rates. The state provides funding for the region, and more state funding is needed. But that argument is undermined when the region builds a budget socking away surplus funds. The access centers are an innovative effort to address emergency mental health needs that were once left in the hands of law enforcement agencies unequipped to handle them. The Lynn and Johnson County facilities are the only ones in Iowa designated as access centers by the state. They deserve adequate funding to do a difficult, critical job. We urge the region to rectify the situation by providing more dollars in the modified budget plan to be unveiled this month and that's today's Cedar Rapids Gazette editorial. We have one committee letter today from Mark Hazlitt of Marion, who says, Marion's police chief is once again crying wolf over red light runners and speeders. Council member Steve Jensen was quoted in the Gazette as saying that Marion has always had a reputation for being tough on speeding, and he wants to keep that reputation. Growing up as teenagers in Cedar Rapids, we would cruise 1st Avenue, but we always stopped short of entering Marion because we knew that the Marion cops were tough on speeders. Let that sink in. We would always stop before entering Marion because we knew that Marion cops were especially tough on traffic violators. Let's talk about now. Marion has sunk a ton of money into a new downtown landscape and roundabouts to help prevent accidents. We have numerous parks and celebrations. We want people to come to our city. We don't want them to stop because of the reputation for which Jensen is so proud. People have other options, and we want to keep Marion as one of them. It makes no sense to subject visitors to Marion, as well as residents, to numerous red light and speed cameras, and whatever else the chief and council can do to keep Marion's reputation as being tough on speeding. Make up your mind and wake up! Do you want to come into the present and welcome visitors to Marion or stay in the past by building on an outdated reputation? That's a community letter from Mark Hazlitt of Marion. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 3rd on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. We'll start with the shorter other notices from Cedar Rapids. Victor A. Barnholt, age 79, died Saturday, February 25th, and the family is taking care of arrangements. Also from Cedar Rapids, William Deacon Severa, age 96, died Thursday, February 23rd. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is aiding the family. From Iowa City, Judy. Jane Hannah Meyer, age 78, died Wednesday, March 1st. Assisting the family will be the Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service of Iowa City. And from Vinton, Douglas Walter, age 65, died Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Phillips Funeral Home of Vinton will be in charge of those arrangements. Now for the longer, more detailed funeral announcements. Doris Marie strait Allen, age 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Thursday, March 2nd at Heritage Specialty Care in Cedar Rapids. The family will host a celebration of life from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, March 19th at 5048 First Avenue Northwest in Cedar Rapids. The Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Richard Sampson of Cedar Rapids passed away on Friday, February 24th. There will be no formal service at this time, but a remembrance gathering for friends and family will be held at 1 o'clock p.m. April 15th at the Softball Hall of Fame building at Ellis Park. The Popage Cuba Funeral Service is serving the family. Sanja Novak passed away suddenly in Cedar Rapids February 24th at her home. She was cremated and no services are planned, but a gathering of relatives and friends will be planned for later in the spring. Duane A. Botcher, age 71, of Mechanicsville, passed away in his home in the early morning hours of Wednesday, March first. Funeral services will be held at Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence on Saturday, March fourth, with visitation from 10 a.m. until services time. The family requests casual attire. The Reverend Byron Miller will be officiating. Joyce Lynn Hoffman passed away in Iowa City unexpectedly on Monday, February 27th. She was a lifelong resident of Iowa City until moving to Cedar Rapids in 2008 to be near family. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, March 7th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City with Father Stephen Witt officiating. Visitation will be Monday from 5 to 7 p.m. Burial, with military honors, will be held at St. Joseph's Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Longfellow Elementary School BTA Building Fund. Marilyn Rose Coppernoll, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 24th, at the Methwick Community after a long illness. Private burial will take place at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery, and a celebration of life will take place at a later date. Robert A. Roder, age 72, of Lansing, passed away on Tuesday, February 28th, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids due to heart complications. Memorial services will be held at one o'clock the afternoon of Sunday, March 5th at Thornburg Grau Funeral Home in Lansing with Pastor Brian Robertson officiating. Military graveside honors will be at Oak Hill Cemetery in Lansing and friends may greet the family from 11 a.m. until service time on Sunday at the funeral home. They say to Feel free to wear Cubs or Packers attire if you would like. Memorials may be directed to the family. Turning our attention now to sports, here's a story written by Jeff Linder at the Girls State Basketball Tournament. The headline just says, It's Our County. Dateline Des Moines. With victory imminent, the Benton Community Student Section fashioned a chant, It's Our County. With one more, and it's their state too. Whistle for her fourth foul late in the third quarter, Jenna Tweet never picked up her fifth. Instead, she scored Benton Community's final 10 points, and the fourth-ranked Bobcats pulled away late from number 10 Vinton Shelsburg, 51-42, in the Class 3A semifinal at the Girls State Basketball Tournament yesterday at Wells Fargo Arena. Benton's McKenna Kramer said, This has been our goal all along. We wanted to play for a state championship, and now we've got the chance. The 23-3 Bobcats will get that opportunity at 8 o'clock tonight against number 6 Sue Center, who was a 46-44 victor over number 2 Solon yesterday. That's the reward for completing a season hat-trick against their county rivals. Like the two regular season games, one of which went to double overtime, this was a fierce battle. Benton coach Jeff Zittergren said that we knew it was going to be an absolute dogfight. We had some girls that really stepped up. And they had that best player of theirs on the floor at the end, which certainly seemed iffy a little while earlier. Tweet was called for her fourth foul on the final play of the third quarter. She sat through the quarter break, but not much longer. Zittergruen said she has to be on the floor for us. She has played with four fouls before. Tweet said, when they called me to go back in, I just knew I had to be smart. I had to play with composure. Benton's lead varied between one and two possessions throughout most of the fourth quarter. Alyssa Griffith's basket with 1.52 remaining brought the Vikettes within 45-42, but Tweet, who finished with 18 points, did her final damage at the free-throw line, making six of eight as the Bobcats broke free. Before this week, Benton had never advanced past the first round. Today, they'll play for a title. Emma Townsley said, it's a dream come true. We've been dreaming about this since fourth grade. Benton's glee was Vinton Shelsberg's heartbreak. The Vickettes roster was full of seniors that played their final game together. Words were hard to come by, and not just for the players. Vickettes coach Rich Hasteman said, the worst part is there won't be another game with most of these kids. Vinton Shelsberg landed the first blow, building on an early seven-point lead. But the Bobcats got all score at 14 by the end of the quarter. Then the teams traded small leads until late in the third period. Aubrey Kelly's three-pointer put the Bobcats in front for good at 32 to 31. Then added a putback on the next possession. Zoe Jungie's triple made it 37-33. Then scored again on a strong drive to the hoop to make it 39-35. Call Kelly and Jungie role players if you like. Their roles were major on Thursday. Vinton Shelsberg's Alyssa Griffith said some of their off players hit some big shots for them. Griffith led the Viquettes with 12 points. Ashley Meyer added 10. Vinton Sheldsburg was making its first trip to state since 1999. The Vicketts had the signature moment of the tournament, knocking off number 1 Esterville Lincoln Central in the first round. Happy Davis said, Everybody knows where Vinton Sheldsburg is now. But, as their student section proclaimed, it's the Bobcats County. Their state? Tune in tonight. That was in 3A. In 5A games yesterday, Johnston beat Ankeny Centennial 42-35, while Pleasant Valley defeated West Des Moines Dowling 50-33. In Class 4A, Dallas Center Grimes topped Ballard 33-32, and North Polk beat Sioux City Heelan 53-41. Here's some more details on that Solon defeat in Class 3A to the hands of Sioux Center. Written by Jeff Linder, who said they had so much going against them. A glaring first-half deficiency on the boards, a 15-point deficit, their star player on the bench disqualified due to fouls. The Solden Spartans were very nearly overcome by all of it. Second ranked Solon scratched and clawed and pressed its way back and had a shot to win it at the end, but Hillary Wilson's three pointer rimmed out at the buzzer, and number six Sioux Center left with a 46 44 Class 3A semifinal victory. Solon's Haley Miller said, We never stopped fighting. We really wanted it. We believed in each other. No matter who was on the floor and who wasn't when All-State Junior Cali Levin, a University of Iowa commit, fouled out with 1.29 left and Sioux Center in front forty-three thirty-six, It looked like curtains for certain for the Spartans. But the remaining Spartans gave it a whirl and darn near pulled it off. Miller had a couple of baskets, including a drive with nine seconds left that made it 46-44. After Sue Center immediately turned it over, Solon had an opportunity to complete a shocking rally. Wilson got a good pass and a good look from the right baseline, but it rimmed out. Solon coach Jamie Smith said, I find myself saying a bunch of cliches, and I hate cliches. What the score sheet doesn't say is what's under the jersey. He tapped his heart, saying our kids just kept playing. They kept playing after giving up 14 offensive rebounds and suffering a nearly unheard-of 28-8 to rebounding disadvantage in the first half. They kept playing after they fell behind 28-12 early in the third quarter. They kept playing after Levin went to the bench. Sioux Center advances to his third state final in seven years. The Warriors were runner-up in both 2017 and 2018. Willow Bleeker said, "'Basketball is a big part of our school.' Wilson shot that three and I just prayed that it wouldn't go in. The Warriors prevailed despite shooting 29.5% from the floor. Bleecker, who grabbed 14 rebounds, said they did so on the glass as rebounding is a mentality and on the defensive end, limiting the Spartans to 26.7%. Solon's Mia Stotley said, we fought until the last second. You win some, you lose some. Miller paced the Spartans with 17 points, Stolley added 9, Levin was held to 8. McKenna Walhoff led Sioux Center with 14 points, while Bleeker scored 12. All of Solon's players that scored Thursday returned for next year, and the Spartans are a good bet for preseason number 1 in Class 3A. Stolley said, this is going to push us to be that much better next year. The state tournament continues with Class 1A and a story written by Jeff Linder, who says, for Northland, chaos can be a beautiful thing. Dateline Des Moines. Don't bother racking your brain trying to come up with a cute, clever moniker for Northland's high energy reserves. They're a step ahead of you. Make yourself acquainted with the chaos crew. Skylar Banesh said proudly, that's us. We're here to bring as much energy as we can. Mackenzie Bridgewater added, We want to give our starters a break. Run around. Get some steals. Force some turnovers. Northland's second five, five—Benesh, Bridgewater, Allie Houghtonberry, Megan Wheatley, and Emily Buter don't simply tread water when they are on the court. They were game breakers Wednesday. That crew cracked the code for, keeping, for keeps late in the second quarter, and third-ranked Northland sprinted away from number eight Winfield Mount Union, 68-36 in a Class 1A quarterfinal. The chaos crew term was first coined by Northland football coach Jared Collum on the local Lynx cast earlier this season, and it fits. Coach Brian Wheatley said the idea goes back to last summer. We didn't have all of our softball kids and it became pretty clear once we got them all back that we had a lot of kids that could contribute. North Lynn is 23-1 and one, and will play in today's semi-final opposite number two Newell Fonda at 3.15 this afternoon. Heading back to the top stories page of today's Gazette, here is one written by Emily Anderson saying Sheriff's Office identifies women killed in shooting. Two women who were killed in a shooting in rural Linn County on Tuesday were identified yesterday as 68-year-old Deborah Nadine Mayfield and 43-year-old Carrie Jane Mayfield by the Linn County Sheriff's Office. A news release said that the women, a mother and daughter, were found dead at 2561 Jordans Grove Road after sheriff's deputies were called at 9.28 a.m. for reports of a shooting. The sheriff's office did not say what led to the shooting and did not announce any arrests. A witness was interviewed at the scene, and the sheriff's office said at the time there was no danger to the public. Both bodies were transported to the state medical examiner's office in Ankeny for autopsies, and the case remains under investigation. Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette has a story on the Top Stories page. Judge sets bail for man charged in cold case. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A judge Thursday said a $1 million cash-only bail for a Cedar Rapids man charged in a cold case murder from 2007. 42-year-old Curtis Padgett was charged with first-degree murder during an initial appearance in Lynn County District Court. Sixth Judicial Associate District Judge Casey Jones said the high bail was based on the nature and circumstances of the accused crime. Patchett had a protective vest he was holding or a blanket wrapped around him and appeared by video from the Lynn County Jail. He's accused of beating and fatally stabbing 64-year-old Dennis First, his neighbor, when the two lived in the Hawthorne Hills apartment complex in May of 2007. Cedar Rapids police declined to say what led to an arrest in the cold case, but Paget was initially arrested Monday and then charged Wednesday for first-degree harassment and aggravated misdemeanor. Paget, who lived at Geneva Tower, is accused of contacting the assistant manager of the building and telling her he was going to burn down the building, according to a criminal complaint. Police said Paget remains a person of interest in the disappearance of 15-year-old Aaron Pospisil who was last seen leaving her Cedar Rapids home on June 3, 2001. Paget is a friend of Pospisil's brother and told police he left their home at the same time as the teen and agreed to give her a ride to a friend's house. Paget said the teen's friend wasn't home and Pospisil got into another vehicle, telling Padgett they would give her a ride. Police couldn't find any witnesses to corroborate Padgett's story, according to news reports, and Possible soul hasn't been seen since she left her house. According to the complaint in First's murder, police, an office manager, and a maintenance man responded on May 11, 2007 to Hawthorne Hill's apartment to conduct a welfare check on First. They found First lying on his back on a pull-out sofa bed in his apartment with his face covered in blood, and he was dead. According to an autopsy, he died from multiple blunt force injuries, including a Escaping cutting stab wound that was more than three inches wide with ragged edges on the right side of his neck he also had multiple large contusions to his face forehead and left ear cuts above his upper lip a broken nose and brain hemorrhaging among other injuries which showed he had been severely beaten Paget, who was a known associate with First, admitted he was at the complex that night. A witness reported hearing the two of them loudly arguing the night before First was found dead, according to the complaint. During the investigation, a partial boot print was found in blood in First's apartment that matched the boots recovered from Paget's apartment. A bloodied oven mitt also was found with both First's and Paget's DNA. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybank said in the complaint that Paget's fingerprint also was found on a knife sharpener in first's apartment in a drawer that appeared to have blood on it in twenty sixteen Paget also reportedly approached another individual unrelated to this incident near a storage garage and made a comment that he had killed someone nine years earlier. The witnesses later in- indicated Paget said the person he killed was someone he used to roll cigarettes for. Paget had told investigators he used to roll cigarettes for first when they were acquaintances. After the murder, Paget told the Gazette he sometimes rolled cigarettes for first and last saw him two nights before first was found dead. Paget said in 2007, I was going to knock on his door Friday morning. When I came out, they were carrying him away in a body bag. He also told a Gazette reporter that police took his fingerprints and a DNA sample. He said first was a good friend and that he had nothing to do with his death. Moving on now to the Business 380 page is a story written by Isabella Zaluska. New hotel coming to Coralville. Dateline, Coralville. A dual-branded hotel and retail building are coming to the west side of Coralville off Interstate 80. The Coralville City Council this week unanimously agreed to rezone 3.84 acres to make way for the hotel and retail buildings on West Cox Drive. The developer hopes to attract national chains such as Starbucks or Panera Bread to the retail building. This project near the I-80-380 interchange will be next to Tyson's. It is expected to create 50 jobs. The hotel will be four stories with 139 rooms, an avid hotel with 71 rooms, and a suites hotel with 68 rooms. John Crump is the chief operating officer of J.D. Royal Hospitality, which is the project's Benton based developers, and told the Coralville Council in January that the project is basically two hotels in one structure. The retail building will be one story with three units with a drive through A parking area will separate it from the hotel building. In addition to a potential national chain in the retail building, other tenants of the retail building could be another restaurant or retail. Crump said the company is excited to bring this development to Coralville. He added, the hotel will have about 25 employees, 15 full time, and 10 employees part time. The retail building will have to have up to 25 employees. Also, on the Business 380 page is a story written by the Gazette staff. Collins partners with a German company to develop Side Stick. Lilium, the German developer of the first all-electric vertical takeoff and landing jet, is contracting with Cedar Rapids-based Collins Aerospace to design, develop, and build jet inceptors, the sidekick system that pilots use to control the aircraft. Collins will develop one side stick that combines the mechanical and electrical flight controls that are now in two side sticks with significant space and weight savings. In a press release, they said that is compared to conventional side sticks. Collins is a Raytheon Technologies business and is a leader in technology, advanced and intelligent solutions for the global aerospace and defense industry, according to the news release. The Lilium Jet Interceptors will provide safe and intuitive handling qualities, easy access to functionalities, and an aesthetic ergonomic design, according to the German company. And also on the Business 380 page, there's a story again written by the Gazette staff says StormGuard coming to Iowa. StormGuard is a national roofing and construction company, and has announced that it's expanding into Iowa and is seeking franchises. The company has 39 franchise locations in 17 states and is looking to add 100 franchise locations in the next five years with Davenport, Des Moines, Iowa City, and Cedar Rapids among the locations it is eyeing in Iowa. The brand's initial franchise fee is $65,000 and the total investment ranges from $185,000 plus to $221,000 plus, according to the news release. StormGuard was founded in 2003 in Minnesota. It repairs homes after storms and provides such services as emergency tarping and painting and replacement of roofing, siding, windows, and gutters while working with home insurance companies. Company president Shane Lynch said in a statement, Iowa residents deserve to have their homes restored by honest and reputable contractors who put integrity first. And finally, on the Business page we have a story, again written by the Gazette staff, says Unity Point, New Mexico Health Systems Pursuing Agreement. Unity Point Health has signed a letter of intent with New Mexico based Presbyterian Healthcare Services to explore forming a new health care organization. The proposed company would see both systems preserve their brand and continue delivering care locally while collectively achieving administrative efficiencies under a parent organization. Clay Holdeman is president and CEO of Unity Point Health and said in a statement Unity Point Health and Presbyterian are two organizations rooted in similar values. He says by lowering administrative costs, Building new capabilities and increasing investments in innovation and clinical excellence, our intent is to help improve affordability and accessibility of care. Dale Maxwell is president and CEO of Presbyterian Healthcare Services and said in a statement that, as a nonprofit health system, Presbyterian quote, must pave a sustainable path forward to continue serving our communities. We know that partners, partnering with like-minded health systems will allow us to accelerate our effort. Combined, Unity Point Health and Presbyterian serve 4 million patients and members in more than 40 hospitals, hundreds of clinics, and health plan operations. The two organizations have 40,000 employees, including nearly 3,000 physicians and advanced practice clinicians, according to a Thursday news release. Goals for the new healthcare organization include greater investment in clinical excellence, digital innovation, workforce development, and value based care while lowering overall administrative costs. Both systems will be working toward a definitive agreement and regulatory approvals, like the news release stated. St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids is part of the Unity Point Health System. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 3rd. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening.